Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 3 for 3 podcast, a podcast where me, John Sekatowski, and Nick Gibson will be discussing some of the hard theological and cultural topics in the Bible, bringing three different perspectives from three different generations. All right, let's get started. Episode two, baby. Or episode one, depending on which one gets posted first. So we might have to cut out me saying episode two. (laughs) Anyways, Um, so the question that I had on my mind for this week, um, I think it's a question that most Christians at some point in their in their Christian life, they ask, they ask themselves. Um, and it's, can you lose your salvation? So like if I'm a young, young Christian man, which I am, and I walk up to you and I say, Hey Nick, I'm freaking out. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I don't know if I can lose my salvation. I don't know if I had it in the first place. Like, can you lose your salvation? I think this is like in the age old question. And I don't know if there's any I did a little research, and I don't know if there's any um, clear answer. But I don't know, what, what do you guys think? Mm-hmm. There's a couple ways to proceed here. We, I can either tell you the answer in a single word and confuse <laughs> everyone, or we can like talk about the three main views Christians tend to have, and then kind of narrow down on how. What are some ways to look at it? Yeah, I think we should just make this as quick as possible. If you just do one <laughs> word, and we'd just be done. Yeah. No, I so, yeah, go through the so three. So metaphysically speaking, the answer is no. Okay. Why? <laughs> okay, so um in the history of the Christian church there's been basically four views on whether or not you can lose your salvation, okay? One is um yes, you can be saved and then you can lose your salvation. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clear. Okay, so it's yeah. Second sense. is no straightforwardly meaning if you seem to be saved like if you accept christ then you're saved and you can't lose it mm-hmm. okay that would be so the first view would be is sometimes just called i don't know what that is. people say i don't people don't really call it. they usually still it's usually called something like the arminian view or it's the view that you can lose your salvation mm-hmm. um the view i just said is called is sometimes called once saved always saved mm-hmm. that's usually associated with the revivalist tradition um which is like a lot of Baptists and stuff like that mm-hmm. would be in that tradition. A lot of, a lot of uh, charismatics would be in that position in that, in that one too. Though there's a lot of charismatics that would be that Arminian position, which is like, yeah, you can be saved and then lose it. Okay. Yep. Pentecostals historically have been the, you can be saved and then lose it. Yep. Yep. And then the, and then there's what's called the perseverance of the saints, which is the, which is usually associated with Calvinism or reformed theology, which is if you really were saved, then you will persevere to the end and be ultimately saved. So if you are really saved, then you can't lose your salvation, but it is imminently possible to be self-deceived about whether or not you're really saved. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, I'm okay. just going to say no. It somewhat makes sense, but I'm just going to say no. Okay, that so um, for example, there's a passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, on that day, meaning the day of judgment, many will come to me and say, yeah. Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many things? Right? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Yeah. Right? So what we're supposed to take from that passage, if we read it carefully, is these are these people are not saved. Okay? They're, they de- they're departing from the Lord in the day of judgment. That is, they're not being welcomed into his presence. They're being sent away. So these are people who, functionally speaking, in relationship to what we're talking about, are damned or not saved. And these, but yet these are people who refer to Jesus as Lord mm-hmm. and Jesus never disputes in the parable. The Lord judging them never disputes whether or not they actually did any of those things. Mm-hmm. Cast out demons didn't even did miracles mm-hmm. in yeah. his name. 
He says, depart from me. I never knew you. What, so wait, where does the power to do miracles? Does the power to do, to do that stuff would come right. from the Holy Spirit, right? That would right. have so, to be So you. that passage favors two of the views and rejects one of these. Okay, so the Arminians go, this is exactly what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus says, I never knew you, but they're doing things that require the spiritual power that comes with being saved and having the Holy Spirit operating in your life. So something happened. Mm-hmm. right but like in order to do these miracles and stuff they must have been really saved and then now jesus doesn't know them and so something must have happened now the calvinist would say yeah except what jesus actually says is i never knew you mm-hmm. that is you did all that stuff you seemed really religious there even seemed to be some kind of power operative in your life but you were never really mine mm-hmm. right does that make sense yeah and so what a calvinist would say is it's very possible you can you can you can think you've repented you can say you accept Jesus and you can have not have repented and not have accepted Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the implication. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the self-deception that we have about like our true hearts is so bad mm-hmm. that there's all kinds of fake repentances that we do. Like we don't want to be caught. We don't want to be held accountable. Yeah. We don't want to feel guilty. None of those are real repentance. Real repentance is like, no, God is God and I was completely wrong and I'm not even using my life for what it's for. And I, everything is wrong about what I just, what I've been doing. And I need to turn entirely to God. So what the Calvinists would say is, unless you experience the miracle of regeneration from God, your depraved nature, that is like all the evil that's like clunking around inside your head, so to speak, and heart, will always self-deceive you. Mm-hmm. And so there's all kinds of fake conversions that you could go through out of out of self-pity or out of wanting to feel meaningful or wanting to feel self-justified. There's all kinds of ways you can lie to yourself and you don't know you're lying to yourself. Unless God does the miracle of regeneration in your heart, you will never really repent. And therefore, you can't really accept Jesus and be saved. So that view says um, the most important thing isn't just whether or not you've accepted Jesus, but testing and seeing whether or not grace or the work of God is operative in your life. If you see evidence of grace operating in your life, then there's good reason to believe you've experienced the miracle of regeneration. If you have, then you're really saved and you will persevere to the end and be saved, i.e. you can't lose that salvation. So in so there's, yeah. just quickly, there's a the fourth view, which is sort of the Roman Catholic view, which is the infusion of grace view, which is if you believe in God and you go to the sacraments, these sacred acts and disciplines, like the Eucharist or taking communion or going to mass and so on, mm-hmm. through those actions, God infuses his spiritual grace into you and sustains you. Mm-hmm. And if you take in that sustenance to the end, then you'll have spiritual life to the end and be saved. Mm-hmm. So but, could, but that means you have to keep doing that stuff. That's basically, that one, we need to throw that one in the trash, right? Because that, that's literally the opposite of the gospel. The, the, the more, the base, that's, that's, a, that's a performance-based religious uh, we viewpoint. Could, on. Instead of throwing that one in the garbage, we could set it aside since we're all Protestants. And that's, maybe we just should do that. Just set it aside and say, <laughs> that's just not one of the views that we generally work from it's hard to get that from the bible i i mean I, that's one thing you could say to say throw mm-hmm. it in the trash those people be like yeah. very few people read the bible and be like oh this is how this works there's a number of sacraments that infuse god's grace spirit like, that's mm-hmm. re- that's you really have to have some layers to get that view i think yeah, yeah. so in john in john chapter six ba- basically so th- is this all based off of if you believe um that in predestination or, or free will kind of because because if people think that they're saved, but throughout like throughout the Bible and throughout like John chapter six it talks about like 
like God chose, like Jesus, he God cho- he chooses the people to follow him. And so mm-hmm. if you're just not one of those people that was chosen by God, then you could you could just fall into that category of people who are like, yeah, I I did miracles in Jesus's name, and I did all these things, and he'll be like, yeah, I didn't I didn't know I didn't know you. Could that just be, uh, could that just be changed to like I didn't choose you, and so you weren't chosen by me, therefore you're not a part of this. This is a this is a my choice only type of thing, and then if that's the case, who makes the choice? If I'm if I so I think that I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. I believe that I follow Jesus, but did I make that choice or did God make that choice for me? Because if God made the choice for me and God's choosing making me choose to follow him, then do I love God or does God just love himself more through me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> does that make you know, any I, sense? When you first wanted to do this podcast, I thought that it was a ridiculously preposterous idea. But one thing <laughs> I see now is that I, I remember having these conversations when I was mm-hmm. 20, you know, like I, I could see a lot of like college students or younger people being like, what, like, what do you do with this? And, and I didn't get, always get great answers from the people I asked. And so, but I remember having these conversations like, am I choosing or is God like it's a free mm-hmm. will or blah, 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 right? It wasn't until much later that I, I realized I, I found out that like, no, every Orthodox that is like every even possibly correct Christian view mm-hmm. believes that God elects or chooses those he saves because the Bible explicitly says that. And then every view believes that human beings experience at least enough free will in order to be accountable for their actions. Right? So the Bible never actually says that we have free will, but what it does assume everywhere Mm -hmm. and explicitly state everywhere is that we're responsible morally for what we do and we could be judged for what we do, which assumes a certain kind of agency in order for us to be, accountable right and so this gets into some actually very complicated arguments i found out over the years Mm -hmm. the the philosophical arguments about what what actually amounts to free will right is very complicated then secondly in the protestant tradition at least since luther and calvin the belief has been pretty strong that what depravity means that is the effect of sin on the human mind and heart Mm -hmm. is that it creates a bond that depravity creates a bondage of the human will. So the normal state of nature now for human beings in the fallen state is that we don't have free will, not because God elects us, but because sin so depraves us that we become reactive machines almost under its, under its force. Mm -hmm. And our, our actual God given divine image will is so under the bondage of that depravity that our will is like under the slavery or it's like in a prison. Mm -hmm. And so what, Protestants have argued over the years is that without the grace of God, without God's spirit, without some kind of miraculous work, either provenient grace or regeneration, depending on the tradition you're from, you're never going to actually make a godly free choice. You might be free to choose chocolate or vanilla ice cream, but the free choice to choose God such that you would be saved is not within the capacity of your will under depravity until the miracle of God's grace makes it possible. Mm Mm-hmm. For Arminians, it, that is a grace called pervening grace where God comes in by his spirit and brings you to the place where you can make a free will decision. Mm-hmm. In Calvinism, it, they believe that God does the miracle of regeneration, which is he saves you. That is, he regenerates you, gives you a new heart, and after that you believe. Arminians believe God brings you basically to where you could make a choice. Then when you make the choice, he regenerates you. 
and in, in theological circles, that's called that doctrine is called the order of salvation, like sorting out what's the order of those things. Mm-hmm. And if you the the fun Latin is the ordo salutis, the order which is just the order of salvation. <laughs> so I've um, an analogy that I've heard to explain those two things is okay. If you imagine you're in the water drowning, is it either that God you know reaches in, grabs you, and pulls you out? Or is it that God reaches down? Thus, that would be like provenient grace. Like he gives you the opportunity to be able to reach up and actually grab something, but you have to take hold of it in order to be pulled out of the water. Um, is that analogy helpful? Are there like, so I've heard that analogy a lot. I don't know if there's just major problems with that analogy or mm-hmm. if there are things that are. It depends on if you're a Calvinist or Arminian. Like, right. I, obviously, so do you have to be one of the two? I, listen, this probably doesn't have much to do with this, but I, I absolutely hate when like, and Christians do this all the time with with several different topics, where they just be like, you have to be one or the other, and that's that. And it's mm-hmm. like you're gonna you're gonna put like uh, issue like salvation into the into two categories. That sounds like the most arrogant idiotic thing I can ever think of. <laughs> I, and I don't know everything about Arminianism or Calvinism, but like it always just really annoyed me when people were like, yeah. you're either one or the other, take your pick and that's what you have. No, you're right. It's not, life. we shouldn't be splitting people into two categories. Like I said at the beginning, there are four categories and you're one of them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no. Okay. So one of the ways, two. one of the ways I've explained this. So there's, there's a way where you could be both a Calvinist and Arminian and also really not be. So, what, what the Arminian is basically, because one of the ways to look at it is say, okay, what pastorally are, is each view trying to accent, yeah. right? Like the, if you come at it from that perspective, like mm-hmm. what good does this doctrine do? Now, obviously doctrines aren't true or false based on what good they do. But one of the ways to understand how, what that truth is for, because remember, there's lots of truths that God didn't tell us and there's specific truths that God does tell us, right? Mm-hmm. So why does he tell us the ones that he does? And the answer is presumably because we need them, mm-hmm. right? They have some operative use for us. So what's the operative use? Okay. So for Arminianism, they're saying you can be saved and you can lose your salvation. Like, why would that matter pastorally? And the answer is so that you would be vigilant, right? Like just because you're saved doesn't mean you can take a break or that you cannot care about your spiritual growth. What's called sanctification. Mm-hmm. Like, but, but wouldn't somebody who has that mindset, let's say somebody who has that mindset where they're like, okay, I believe I'm saved, but like now that I'm saved, you know, God forgives. I'm going to go and do horrible things. Somebody who has that mindset who right. thinks that they could take a break, you could assume then that they weren't saved in the first place because nobody who's truly saved by Christ is going to have that mindset. Right, but well, but the right, but the danger is if if the teaching is okay, it's only you're saved by faith, and especially in kind of the culture of the quote unquote sinner's prayer, and that okay, if I've if I've done that prayer, then I'm in no matter what. I mean that it could potentially produce that feeling in people of, well, I'm good. Right. I'm good. I mean, and what, what that means is now they've been, it's like they've received a vaccine against the real gospel because they've heard that they're sinners. They accepted they were sinners. They accepted Jesus. Now they're saved. Once they're saved, they're always saved. They're going to heaven. doesn't matter what. In the American South, for example, if you go to the Bible belt, I mean, you can pull up on somebody in a grocery store parking lot and they're smoking a blunt and drinking like a, mm-hmm. like a fifth and like, cussing and doing what like just like zero fruit of anything in their life and you're like dude you need to go to church with me and they're like dude i'm saved yeah. and you're like there's no evidence of salvation and they're like i don't know what you're talking about but i went to a baptist church 
I accepted Jesus and I got baptized. I'm going to heaven. Like I literally went, I went to a funeral when I was in Florida and there was this guy who had lived like a horrifically dissolute life. The only thing that could be said for his accomplishments was he watched a lot of NASCAR. Okay. <laughs> and he like died at a young age of like some disease that like if he'd done a push up, he would have not died of. And like just a very wrecked his life. Okay. Mm. And the, so the preacher gets up there and he's like a classic one saved, always saved revivalist tradition, Baptist preacher. Right. And of course, Baptists are all over the map on this. You can find Baptists in every single one of these camps except the Catholic one. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you know, John Anderson, whatever the guy's name is, right? He's like, he's like, John, you know, John and in, in 1980 in the record book of like Lynn Haven Baptist Church mm-hmm. came up to the altar call and accepted Jesus and was baptized on May 24th, 1980. And the gift God gave him that day, he could never lose. And he's in heaven today. I, that, that's. And what John Wesley said in the 1700s was about that doctrine, that that is the sort of doctrine that sends men to hell with smiles on their faces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I need to write that on my wall. Yeah. Because and, and, and see, the reason here is that the Wesleyan Arminianism, the view that like you can lose your salvation, mm-hmm. the 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 context that grew up in, because like the history of doctrines can be sometimes be very helpful understanding why they mm-hmm. grew up. Um, there was a certain, so there was Anglicanism in England at the time, and Anglicanism was very works-based, right? And to recover from that works-based Anglicanism, there was a, a body of people who are sort of like, sort of Calvinistic, that were preaching grace to it. They were like, no, you're not saved by works. You're not saved by being upper class and by being able to read. You're, you're saved by believing in Jesus, and he forgives you of your sins, and you're 100% saved. Now, in order for those Calvinists to fully contrast the what's called semi-Pelagianism, which is like this, like, you know, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mm-hmm. Christianity. Right. They were emphasizing grace so much that you were starting to get what's called antinomianism, which is like against the law. Like God's law doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. And so they're like, I'm saved and I can do whatever I want. And it's like, it's totally fine because, right. And so in this reform, you were getting this excess and along comes John Wesley. And now he's looking at the, at the works-based Anglicanism, but now he sees this growing antinomianism. This like, I don't have to even do anything Jesus says. And he's like, you guys, you're freaking all crazy. And so he's like, the Anglicans are wrong. It's not by works. It's completely by faith. So he starts speaking, preaching justification by faith alone. He gets kicked out of every Anglican church, right? But then he preaches against the antinomian Catholicism or the antinomian Calvinism. And he's like, no, you have to obey the Lord. You have to do what he says. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, there's no operative grace in your life, which means you're not saved. Except what he says is that if you've experienced something that feels like salvation, you can lose it. Hmm. Right. And that's what he Hmm. preaches. And so what he's saying is he's saying like, you guys can lose your salvation. You guys need to be saved by faith alone. So it's partly that. It's like faith, faith uh, without works is dead. Right. Yeah. Right. And Wesley, I mean, very strongly believed that, that you needed to have works that demonstrated your faith, but you'd mm-hmm. be judged by faith, not by works. Mm-hmm. So the, the important thing to remember, remember for Arminianism or the idea that you can lose your salvation is that what it's meant to do is to take somebody who believes that they're saved and say, look, you need to watch it. Hmm. Like you're, you're not automatically anyway, like you need to be in the game today. So, so like, so you agree with that, with that type of thinking then? That, that like so what I what I tell people is okay here's you know, I'll, I'll tell you my view right now here's my view my view is that metaphysically that is in spiritually like rea- the, the, in like the hardest core reality that we can't see in mm-hmm. God's mind okay in God's mind if someone is really saved they will persevere to the end and be saved so therefore if you're saved you can't lose your salvation mm-hmm. I believe that the Calvinist view is right 
from God's perspective, hmm. which is the most important one. Okay, and that, right. you get that from like scripture, right? Like you I get think that. so. Okay, I, right. I think that view best puts together the most scriptures, but it doesn't take all of them into account perfectly, and so that's why I'm not. I try not to be real arrogant about it. That's the view I think is most likely true based on how, how the views we've got. Mm-hmm. But pastorally, like from our perspective, how we encourage each other, mm-hmm. I think that the Armenian view is helpful to be like, look, dude, just because you're with Jesus today doesn't mean right. Like, like you need to you need to act like you can lose your salvation. Yes, mm-hmm. that's exactly it. I and believe that if you're saved, God will cause you to persevere to the end. Because mm-hmm. there's right. two things that Christian needs. They need encouragement and they need vigilance. And the, see, the Calvinist view is if you're really saved and grace is operative in your life, mm-hmm. God will carry you to the end. He will be the good shepherd. You will not be lost. He will make sure that you make it. You will not lose because you're weak. Like he will give you strength. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry that like you will work as hard as you can and you won't make it. God is going to carry you and help you and give you life and give you strength, right? That's true. Mm-hmm. And then, But then the other thing Jesus is trying to be like, now listen, you're going to need to like mm-hmm. sacrifice and take up your cross daily and make every effort to add to your faith. All these like in second Peter three or one, three to 11. Like, so there's this emphasis in the Bible that like you have to work as hard as you possibly can to be saved. And there's this other theme in the Bible. Salvation is entirely a gift of God. And both of those exist side by side and you need both the encouragement of the one and the vigilance of the other. Mm-hmm. And so I think in some ways those two views sit beside each other to keep us honest on one side and to keep us from despair on the other. Mm-hmm. And so I think that they're both helpful. The one I do, the two I don't like, I think that are very destructive is the infusion of grace view, the Roman, the Roman Catholicish view, mm-hmm. though I don't know how a modern Roman Catholic would develop that now. Right. Before the Reformation, it was like that. I think some modern Catholics have changed their views of that a little bit. Hmm. So I don't know. In some ways, that might be an additional view about like how you draw on the grace of God as he keeps you. But the one where the one saved, always saved is the one I really, 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 really think is a terrible, terrible thing. Because I think that it tends to give people a fake encouragement mm-hmm. and insulate them from a biblical vigilance. And I think it's ultimately a very bad treatment. Mm-hmm. The way that I've always, well, not always, but the way that I thought about it was like, I, I don't believe that you can lose your salvation, but I live like I can. And I think that like, but I think one, one other thing that like falls under this topic of can you lose your salvation is then like after discussing that, then how as Christians do we do um, evangelism then? Because mm-hmm. like we, we did a ton of uh, evangelicals, like they did a ton of like Billy Graham, a ton of altar calls and everybody's coming up and a bunch of emotions and like, and like let's manipulate everybody's emotions with loud music and lights and, and all this other crap at big convention, conventions, holy cow, um, <laughs> big at big conventions and, and, you know, have youth conferences and, and let's, let's do all that. And then let's get thousands of people to come up to the front and, and claim that they're Christians. And then I feel like that that's the fake encouragement that you're talking about. They go out thinking that they're, they're saved, live a life that's no different from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. They die and they go to hell, but the church is sitting there telling them, yeah, you're, you're all good. So how do we do, how do we do evangelism then as, as believers, true evangelism, because like that's not, that's not it. And and the prayer too, mm-hmm. praying the prayer. So like, yeah, I went on a missions trip this summer and it was totally based around 
going out on the beaches in South Carolina and trying to get these people on the beach, as many people as possible to pray this prayer. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, I did not feel comfortable with doing that because I was like, I don't care if they say these words. People talk all the time. And, and it feels like, like, like you said, like uh, people are running the race to hell and the American church is on the sideline clapping for them because we're just encouraging them to keep going and we're just confusing them more. So how do we do evangelism? How do we do it? Mm-hmm. I mean, in one way we can just go back to the fact that Jesus didn't tell us to do evangelism so much, so much as make disciples, right? And that's kind of a generally longer process and it includes teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded, right? I mean, that's that's a key idea. So mm-hmm. anything that we do that we think is leading people to Jesus, Jesus' disciples learn to obey everything that Jesus commanded. If you don't, if you're not interested in learning to obey everything Jesus commanded, you're probably not Jesus' disciple. He probably doesn't know you and you because you don't know him. And I think it's important to tell people that. However, I, I, w- I would want to push back a little bit on what you said about the evangelistic methods of evangelicals in, in its entirety. If your accusation that it's very manipulative is true, then it's manipulative, right? I don't think it's purposefully manipulative. But if it's very evocative, like like we are emotional creatures and we can be persuaded on the right, spot. Right, and right, right. Yeah. generally speaking, critical moments have to happen in our life where we realize, I need to quit doing what I'm doing and, and go a different direction. And I think highly evocative, moving services that use art and stuff. And I mean, maybe smoke's a little much, but like, <laughs> I do think that like, you should preach and try to access the heart of people. Yeah. And that I think is that going to be found, emotional. That's not found in lights and, and, and all that stuff. That's the Holy spirit does that job. That's why we don't need those things. Like, like to have like lights, whatever, yeah. do your lights. I don't care. But, but I think, the I, Holy I don't, spirit think, that's does the, I don't think that's the main thing you're getting at. I think the two things you're really getting at that I think are good objections is a thinking that you can have one moment and then you're done mm-hmm. because if they pray the prayer, you've accomplished what you've come to accomplish. As opposed to if they pray the prayer, you may have started a journey that you now need to walk with them through. Yeah. And I think that's the way you have to look at evangelism is like if somebody prays a, a prayer to accept Jesus, repent of their sins and accept Jesus, that's great. They just started something. Mm-hmm. And I, I think one of the, I think one of the passages that from a ministry perspective, like you're talking about how to do evangelism, you have to look at the parable of the sower, right? You've got this guy who goes out and he sows all these seeds and you've got You've got one where like there's no, never any sprout, right? But in two of them, you have sprouts that spring up that die. Now, that's clearly supposed to be a response. So in three of the four cases, you have a response. What does a sprout re- like represent in that story? Like, does it, it represent say. faith? Or, oh, I, yeah, I, I, think, I think it is that somebody says that they're going to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's, it represents... They hear like, the message of the gospel and they go, I'm going to go after that. So they, they like... Okay, but it doesn't necessarily represent true faith. Just like not somebody saying like, I'm, no. I want to do this. But I think it at least, I think it at least means somebody is following or being mm-hmm. a hearer of that truth and they're like moving towards mm-hmm. it. This could potentially be like a, like a Hebrew six, like they're participating in the Holy Spirit or, or is that bringing something that's going to be unhelpful John, to, yeah. Yeah. John, yeah. That's, I think that Hebrew six is the most problematic passage for the Calvinist view. Because I believe that language to participate in the Holy Spirit and some of the other language in that passage, I don't see how that can be anything but regenerative, real, absolute, mm. real faith. I know Calvinists try to say it's not. It's something short of it. Mm-hmm. I remember I had a professor just say literally, it's something short of salvation. I was like, 
That sounds ideological more than exegetical. Like, <laughs> like sounds like that's just, just your theological yeah. view rather than you're actually letting that passage say what it's meant to say. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I wouldn't include that here. Yeah. But but I would say in the parable of the sower, you've got the thing that sprouts up and then it doesn't have root because it's among the rocks and then mm-hmm. it dies. This is Mark 4 is one of the places where this is in the Bible if you want to go read it, if you're a listener. And then there's another one where it grows up and then there's there's weeds that grow up and choke it to death, right? And it's unfruitful. And then you've got another that bears fruit. Now, arguably, you could say the last two are saved because it says that the choke, the fruit, the plant is choked and unfruitful, but it doesn't actually say the plant dies. Mm-hmm. Some people think that means you can be a Christian Live a very unfruitful life, but you're still saved in the end. Yeah, and unfruitful doesn't sure mean true. fruitless. I, I, like, right? Yeah. I think that that matters. In theory, but the, the point is is that there's three different results. And if you're thinking about evangelism, you need to think. You, some people aren't going to respond at all. Mm-hmm. That's true. Secondly, some people are going to look like they respond. They're going to respond in a moment, and then there's going to be no follow-up. They're done. And you'll see that. You'll see people cry and like, Say, oh, I just, I love Jesus. I want, right? and they'll like do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then th- literally they're gone two days later. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you've seen this before. I've seen it dozens of times. Then you've got other people who are like, really do come to Jesus as far as you can tell. And they're walking with him. And then over time, things in life creep in and choke out their faith. And then other people right, go through. That's ministry. That's what we're doing. You need to realize that those are the four things that normally happen. We need to fight against the first three and we need to seek to maximize the fourth. And mm-hmm. But um, f- w- when it comes to things like election, like you were talking about before, mm-hmm. Andrew, I think um, some people will say like, well, if some people are elected and some people aren't, then there's no use in doing evangelism, right? That's what Armenians normally say. Why? Yeah. What Calvinists normally say is, well, listen, if total depravity means no one would ever choose Jesus without mi- uh, the miracle of God, mm-hmm. then election basically is what makes evangelism possible. Hmm. And so if there is a certain group of people who are elect, when you do evangelism, you're just going out and finding them. Yeah. And But the reason why you can be encouraged to actually do it is because you know out there in the human race are these people that are among the elect that God is going to do this miracle to save. Hmm. Through, with, through, through us. Through us. I think that, yeah, right. I think like for the, for the people who are like, well, there's no point to go out and do evangelism now that everybody's like predestined. I think that that's kind of dumb because the reason why part of the reason why we're here is for, for God to use us to do that. But I would, I would then mm-hmm. ask, I would then ask the question of like, when it comes to like, so it, it, like missions and, and being a missionary and like missions trips and that kind of thing, which, which are all great. And I think like the, obviously the gospel needs to be spread everywhere, mm-hmm. but let's, let's say like short term missions trips, like uh, yeah. uh, a month yeah. to three month missions trips where you go out and you go to this place and you you share the gospel and and whatever i mean in most of the cases there's like a system set up so the one that i went on there's a system set up you try to get people to pray the prayer if they don't you move on to the next person okay so it, like you said we're going to make disciples mm-hmm. so getting people to pray the prayer is not making disciples to me i, I don't that doesn't look like discipleship at all and so what do you even do you even waste your time with with short term missions because if you're going there to make disciples discipleship is from my what i know about it is like is almost it's like a lifelong commitment it's like i'm gonna show you who jesus christ is i'm gonna i'm gonna teach you about him and i'm gonna show you through my actions and through my life and that happens over a long time i don't just 
I don't just trust somebody in what they're saying. Even even if they talk to me for three months, I don't trust them. I don't I don't mm-hmm. do that. People don't do that. So why go on these missions trip for three months and then and then act like you you did all this amazing stuff? Especially when if you go on a missions trip and you're telling all these people about Jesus and they're like, okay, what do I do next? And you're like, okay, go to your local church. You can't even say that because you can't trust the local churches anymore. You can't trust anybody. So what do you do? You go on those. This this is personal yeah. for me. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, okay. So, did you want to say it's it's your turn to talk, Jonathan? I don't. I I mean. I, I, there's a difference between going like on a week trip and you like p- pass out candy to get kids to come to vacation Bible school where they all raise their hand with their eyes closed to accept Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then you like dematerialize three days later. Um, be, and the, the big, the biggest issue there is not just that you did that or that they pray the prayer, but that there isn't any follow up. They're not actually yeah. added to the body of Christ. So in order for disciples to not miscarry, they have to be added to the body of Christ and, and to a relatively healthy one would be the hope. Right. Mm-hmm. So one of the things churches are starting to do is they're getting smarter in having in country partnerships and investing in vibrant local churches where they're going to go do their yeah. ministry yeah. so that when you go in there and you do that ministry and the question is, well, where are these people going to go when I leave? And the, the answer is that, you know, there is a local church. And so some of the, for some of these ministries, they'll go and do the thing and then they'll have like it's their evangelism service in the local church the mission team will do it, but all the people who go to that local church are there too, and they start to connect with those people. So I think there are ways mission trips can do good evangelism, but I think that it is necessary that they have some kind of connectivity because mm-hmm. discipleship does require that, yeah. yeah. And I do think that the local church is important. The question is, if you can do the legwork or if you can do the work of supporting and building the local church in an area, mm-hmm. then you have somewhere to send people. You do evangelism. One, yeah. one of the things we did at High Point is we have these partnerships in the Dominican Republic. And we've been working down there and doing all these like things to, to build up the community, but we really didn't do much to build up the local churches and the quality of ministry of the local churches was pretty low. Mm-hmm. And so people didn't catch on there because the churches just were pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And so we realized that as we were doing these partnerships, we, we needed to do work to build up these pastors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that what be being pastors an, an apostle, apostle, like in, in Ephesians? Right? Didn't you? Partly, yeah. I mean, people would go and build up churches in different areas, or not build up. I guess they would yeah. start churches, mm-hmm. but that type of thing. Yeah, and the thing is, is that there there was already stuff going on at the Dominican Republic to support pastors and make them better at being pastors. These pastors just didn't know about them. They didn't go. They didn't have the few dollars it took to get there, or or the transportation. And so, by getting these pastors to these pastor building ministries and to get them getting more discipled, because remember, I mean, we can say what we want about like the local church sucking but in most places of the world where the local church sucks the pastors have received zero training Hmm. no one has trained them and that's that's something we can do i mean the ministry i do with manohar james in india for example it's all it is we just we train pastors who have no training Hmm. and the the difference we see their churches double in size in two years i mean that even does that makes a huge difference i mean yeah i I guess it makes a difference. And we talk like size to me. I don't really care about size. There's a lot of big churches with terrible pastors, but uh, like the, I think the question is more of like, are you finding actual pastors or are you just, so like, this is a question that I've had because I know that there's like, and, and this is not on the topic of salvation as much anymore, but whatever. Um, it's the question that I've had of like, when you talked to, you talked about the, 
at one point you talked to, to me about those five um, Ephesians things. You talked about the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, and the evangelist. Mm-hmm. And so like um, the, each person kind of falls into one or two or even maybe five of those things, <laughs> rarely. Um, and so like at, in America, I think, and I'm, I'm more focused on in America because that's where I live. Um, in America, I think we're more, we're so focused on, on pastor everybody's like i want to be a pastor i want to be a pastor i'm going to go to seminary and be a pastor where i think to be a pastor like god makes you a pastor you 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 are created to be a pastor you don't train to become a pastor i don't think you train to become those things like you can lead people in those things and 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 you can pastor people you can lead people in evangelism but you don't you aren't an evangelist or a pastor unless god has created you that way so this whole like what the the church system is set up in America is like corporate corporate church where everybody's trying to work their way to the top and become the pastor. And you got so many people who are just not, they're not meant to be pastors and we're lacking in like the other four. And so like, are, are, are we, I yeah, you, you should that, tell us how you really feel. I do. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm fired <laughs> I mean, out this morning. <laughs> Andrew, I just want to affirm that I think you're absolutely right that this is off topic. Um, <laughs> yes, this is totally <laughs> off topic. No, but I, I mean, in one in one sense, when you start thinking about what's, it's not off topic in this sense, though, right? You, any ministry ought to be reverse engineered, right? And so you should start with like, what's salvation? Mm-hmm. And if you believe that salvation that salvation is something that must persevere in people to be real, okay? So you're not counting decisions. You're counting persevering disciples. Mm-hmm. So my conviction about what scripture says about salvation is only those who persevere to the end are saved. That's my conviction. Okay. It says that like seven times in the first letters of revelation. I think the Bible is very clear that perseverance is necessary. Yeah. Okay. If that's true, then once saved, always saved is not true because within that paradigm, you can accept Jesus and you, you cannot even start to serve Jesus, much less persevere in him, and you're saved. And I just think that's an abomination to the Bible. So, okay, so if that's true, then you need people to accept Jesus, and you need them to per- persevere to the end. So you need people who confess Christ, engage in the discipleship process of sanctification, learning to obey everything Jesus commanded, and persevere to the end. That's your goal. Now, if that's your goal, then how would you do ministry? Yeah. If that's your goal. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. you'd be inviting people into a body of Christ or enter a relationship that could walk with them over a long period of time. You'd be a family. This, right. Yeah. A family, a body, uh, all these metaphors that the mm-hmm. Bible uses, a living temple, right? You want them to come into the family of God and to be strengthened with all the other people strengthening them because making it to the end is critical, right? And so you do that and then you'd, you'd want to reach out and be making these holistic, lifelong, persevering disciples. So you have this very holistic view is very complete view. If that's true, then you want to build a church that's aimed at that, right? And so, like, for example, churches that don't believe in this don't have mentoring ministries. Like, there's very few churches that believe in just like once saved, always saved, who have long-term intergenerational yeah. mentoring ministries. What is, me- what is mentor? Explain mentoring to me. So the, the word comes from the Odyssey where Odysseus goes to the Trojan War. He leaves his young son behind, mm-hmm. and he has a servant who's named Mentor who is this man of like character. He's an older man. He knows how to become a man. He knows what Odysseus is like. And so he leaves this guy mentor behind to raise his son up to honorable manhood when he's away at war. So it's somebody who, who helps another person become an honorable, strong, courageous, like godly, so to speak. So are, are you like just interchanging mentorship with discipleship? 
So isn't that what discipleship is? Well, but you can experience discipleship without mentorship. I think mentoring is a one-on-one relationship that's usually intergenerational in which somebody's holistically walking with you into honorable and godly manhood or womanhood. And like, and in my view, it, it must be a same sex relationship. Yeah. Reasonably speaking. That's, mm-hmm. that's not totally, I mean, sometimes people use the word mentor for somebody who just helps them a lot. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes those are cross gender relationships, especially pro- professionally, mm-hmm. but I'm speaking within a pastoral context right now. So, so like that's, so is mentorship mentioned in scripture because i i have a i always have a problem yeah i think i think paul was a mentor to timothy and to silas wasn't he a dis i mean he was a disciple to i'm like i I know this is i'm like right mentor is not a biblical word it is a greek word right right that refers to a category but mentoring but but um is it there's what's the what's the favorite navigator verses in second timothy where it says like it trusts to reliable men Mm -hmm. these things who they will entrust it to others it's like you entrust to one generation and they will entrust to another generation. And it has this one-on-one connotation to it. And um, that's how, that's Paul's ministry model that he tells Timothy to enact in the churches that he leads. Mm -hmm. And that's what we mean when we say mentor. So you're saying what's, what's like not helpful about using the word of like discipler, I'm doing air quotes, discipler and disciple is then it takes the more holistic category of discipleship and just like, atomizes it into okay it's this only the only thing that discipleship is is this relationship between the quote-unquote discipler and the disciple so it's helpful to you so in a way it's helpful to use the word mentor because that's a part of the larger thing that is yeah i was just discipleship thing, yeah so as opposed to discipleship and then it's like a sub a sub category of, of discipleship mm-hmm. or like a su- it's like a, if there's a drop down yeah. under disciple because mentorship could right because be i've heard i've heard a lot it's, the, it's, it's one it's one way so deci- so deci- you can say discipling someone right mm-hmm. as long as you realize that like when you say discipling mm-hmm. and just and then when you say discipleship those are not fully interchangeable yeah right discipleship is everything involved in being a disciple of jesus right right and when you disciple someone almost nobody can do everything but that's but if you have a discipler right mm-hmm. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to be holistic and help you walk into everything Jesus mm-hmm. has for you and has commanded of you. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that's bad. I mean, I, I know that some of the college ministries will use that disciple or disciple or whatever, mentor, protege, whatever. Mm-hmm. The, the, the point of that is, is that I think, I think those are useful because I think in the Bible, the, the model of one-on-one mm-hmm. is a major model. Yeah. I think it may be the preeminent model mm-hmm. that you have large-scale proclamation, and then you have one-on-one discipleship or mentoring, right? Yep. Or or leading people into deeper faith. Right? I think those are the two main modes. And then in the midst of those, you've got like small groups and medium-sized groups. You got you could do whatever you want, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the Bible doesn't say you got to do it just like this. Mm-hmm. But the Bible seems to always have an, in its view one to one or a few, mm-hmm. right? Jesus and his disciples, and he's focusing on those people. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and then he even like he has his twelve, and then he focuses on the three even more than he focuses on the on the rest. Right, of James, them. John, and Peter. Yeah, right, yeah. and then of those three, he focuses on, on Peter on more Peter. than the others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, Robert Coleman pointed that out like fifty years ago in his book Master Plan of Evangelism. Where mm-hmm. it's like there was there's like the crowds, and then there's the seventy, right? Mm-hmm. And then among the seventy, there's the twelve. Among the twelve, there's the three, and among the three, there's the one. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's how you should be discipling if you're a Christian leader. That like, yes, you proclaim to everyone. And then you might have like a church or a group of people that you are like over, right? And so then you've got like the 12. The 12 are like over the 70. Mm-hmm. 
right? But you're also training them, and then you've got oh. the three and the one. So, so you have kind of this like, not a pyramid, but you've got this model. It's basically it, a pyramid. It's kind because of like a pyramid. The, the it's, lit- it is kind of hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's good though. Because but everything in human life is hierarchical. People want to pretend yes, it's right, not true, right. but yeah, it, that's it is that's, true. that's a whole other discussion. That yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. think just it, Google Jordan Peterson lobsters yep. or something. Yeah, yep. and you'll it's learn just all a, it's a biological fact that's acknowledged, and the Bible seeks to reform it mm-hmm. rather than to pretend it shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just, so, so in that sense, um, r- salvation and our model of ministry are very closely related, mm-hmm. and I think that there are yeah. a lot of churches now in America and in everywhere in the world that have been doing ministry for hundreds of years and they have a little model by which they do it. Mm-hmm. And the me- the methods they use have sort of become the tradition yeah. and they don't go, okay, what age are we living in now? What's yes. going on oh, now? Amen. And then how do we then reverse engineer that for now hmm. to yeah. reach people? Because the idea that you told, you told me about in the car, me and John he's drove pointing, in the car. Yeah, he's pointing at John. I'm pointing at John. When he says you. You, yes, John. So me and John were driving in a car for what, mm-hmm. 14 hours? Seven hours. Seven well, hours. Seven hours there. there seven hours. Seven back, hours. Back. And we argued the whole time. We we basically it was, it was, it was, it was great. a great time. Yeah. And John told me about this idea of 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 ide- ideological thinking versus um, pre- presuppositional presuppositional thinking. thinking. And you can like, tell John's been going to seminary. <laughs> yeah, John's a smart guy. Um, and and basically like like that whole idea of what you just said, the church in America is ridiculously behind on like everything i mean even the church that i go to the carpets are from yeah. like the 19 okay so 80s but I, I, I like i know younger people are going to listen to this and i very much appreciate your honesty and i want you to continue to be honest i you just need to remember you're talking about the bride of the living christ right right, okay? right, right. just I, you need to keep that in mind <laughs> yes sir yes sir yes so, she's bad at a lot of things and i'm part of her and like if jesus so, called me a whore i would be like yes we are but she's also the bride of the living christ so just be careful right so how do we catch up though yeah. How do we, cause, cause like, cause like sometimes you walk, like, I don't know, like in the fifties they did evangelism their way and it probably worked for people in the fifties because things were different back then. Like fa- there were more yeah. families that were together and things were, yeah, people did door to door evangelism because if yeah. somebody knocked on your door, you opened up your door and let them in and you talked to them and it wasn't, it wasn't some big hassle. Mm, it right. was like you lived in a neighborhood, you had extra time, you weren't watching TV 27 hours a week or playing video games with people in china and so like people's home lives are very different mm-hmm. so walking up on somebody's porch where they might already be sitting in a rocking chair and being like hey and then asking questions like if you died tonight do you know for sure whether you'd go to heaven or hell that was the big evangelism explosion question yeah well for people who are christ haunted who lived in a christian nation who had grown up going to church and had stopped they they already assumed like oh that's that's a real question yeah i forgot about that i'd put that out of my mind I need to think about that again. Mm-hmm. You go to somebody now and you say, if you if you die tonight, do you know for sure you go to heaven or hell? They'd be like, I don't think there is a heaven or hell. You hate gay people. Like, I mean, it would, they would just yeah. jump down your throat and be like, they wouldn't accept any of your premises and it just doesn't go. Mm-hmm. And it's because the context is different. We're talking to people who believe different stuff. Yeah. And But evangelism is still possible. Yeah. You just have to reverse engineer it a little different. So how, like, So how do you think? What would be a good way? I mean, like for me, I'm I'm younger, obviously, than both of you. And like for people like me and how do we. So like I'm called to go out and evangelize to people like my age and, and everybody. But how do I evangelize? I found it hard to evangelize to people my age because they don't want to hear it. Like you just said, like they'll be like, 
like, no, I'm okay with like getting trashed every weekend and doing what I'm doing, which is also just like kind of part of growing, growing up. Like a lot of people go through that phase and then they just stop and then they wonder like, what's the point of their life? But like, I want to, I like, we live right down the street from, from UW, which is one of the top party, party schools in America. And there's so many people just throwing their lives away. And like, how does somebody my age go out and make disciples with, with the idea of like, you know, one thing that I think about is, do I want somebody to mimic my faith? Like, like, Mm -hmm. and the answer right now is probably not because I'm young and I, and I don't know exactly what I'm talking about in a lot of things. And like, I'm, I'm trying to, to strive for, for, to live like Christ, but I'm just, I'm not, you know, like I'm not fully there, which I never will be, but you know, I'm not, I haven't reached like a certain level or whatever. There is a point though. Yeah. There's a point where the apostle Paul says people imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right. Yeah. So how do you go, how do I go out and make disciples while being like, okay, listen to me on what I'm saying about the gospel, but like, I don't know everything or like, do I, do I refer them to, to other people to disciple them or the local church, you bring them to the body of Christ. But like, yeah, at your stage, you should be saying something like, don't imitate me, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's been change in me. That's evidence that God can work. God can work in you, but I'm not to the point yet where you should be imitating me. Right? Huh. At least in a lot of stuff. Um, maybe an interest in God, you can imitate me, but mm-hmm. that maybe is it. Um, but later in your life, you'll be the place where you're like, there's a lot of stuff I do you could do. And it would be good. Yeah. You'll get sorted out over time. If you, if you pursue discipleship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I think to answer your question, I think increasingly in the time that we're in where it isn't right. Where When you ask that question, are you going to go to heaven or hell tonight? That isn't a question that's compelling to people. Like for example, I, um, on my, on my commute, a billboard was recently put up that was, oh, yeah. you know, I saw it. right. Where yeah. are you, where are you going to go tonight? Heaven or hell? And I was just like, ah, like that's just not that helpful for a lot of people nowadays. Yeah. It it, I mean, if they would have put a billboard up that said of the one of the 640,000 in school volunteer hours last year, mm-hmm. 500,000, 400, you know, 4,062 mm-hmm. were right. done by Christians. Right. Why right. is that question mark? Exactly. And I think that's the thing that's beca- that will in our current cultural moment become increasingly compelling is bringing people into contact with Christians who are living lives, hopefully beautifully after God and wholesomely. And so obviously that isn't to say, so I think it's, there is an easy way where you can go about this, where you say, okay, you know, we need to, we need to share the gospel with our actions, not so much with our words. And I, I think that's not helpful and that should not be the, right. the solution. Right. However, I think increasingly the actions and the beauty of our discipleship towards Jesus are going to have to be a big part of our evangelism mm-hmm. where previously you might've been able to just have a conversation with somebody and that was enough, but they're going to need to be persuaded to come along, to come around to the idea that Christianity could potentially be good. There used to be a sense that even, you know, in the seventies and eighties, that even if I wasn't living a life that was like in line with Christian sort of moral virtue, that was still probably the like good way to live, you know? And that's increasingly being brought into question. Is that even the good way to live, to live in such a way that is to live Christianly? And I think the cultural consensus right now is no. So 
in certain parts of the country, which includes ours. Right, right. There's some places where that's not true. I mean, there's certain places where a lot of, there's a lot of Christ-hunted people still. But places right. like Madison, San Francisco, Seattle, right. there is a very strong belief that that the that traditional ways of living, which in their minds mm-hmm. includes Christian faith, yeah. is harmful mm-hmm. because it perpetuates institutional problems. Yeah generally speaking. Yeah. And they don't see it as sufficiently feminist and pro gay in those sorts of things. Right. Right. So I think like like for for next generation, the whole question of like if you die tonight, you go to heaven or hell, I think that was that was pretty effective. And I think for the millennials, <laughs> like like what you said about um it is, so volunteer our, hours. No, but I think this gets at what you're saying about the church being behind. Because that question had already broken down by my generation. I'm forty two, right? So I'm a Gen Xer. Evangelism explosion was already starting to not work with boomers. Mm-hmm. It was it, it was it was developed by a builder. It was already starting to not work with boomers, right? Yeah. And then so by the time I got to college in 1995, that was already passe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's now 2019. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there's a lot of there's a lot of churches. I would I would argue the majority of Bible believing churches are still behaving that way. They're still right. using evangelism methodologies. And here here's what's even worse than that. When I go to places like India, guess what they're doing? Same thing. Same thing. Right. Because they were taught by our fundamentalist missionaries. And they're they're still behaving now in places like India and Africa like our fundamentalist missionaries were behaving in the 60s. -hmm. And so when Manohar and I go there, we're like, you guys, just stop. Okay? Just stop doing this. Mm -hmm. Let's jump 70 or 100 years forward and get out in front of where we are and learn to really contextualize. Some of them go, yeah, but about a third of them say you're leading us astray. Mm-hmm. You're preaching a false gospel. And sometimes they'll stand up in the seminars and say, we don't listen to these people. And you would even, <laughs> that might even happen in, a, that would happen even in America. Cause I think of mm-hmm. like, like, okay, so that, that, that worked for like uh, your generation, John's generation, your millennial. And I think mm-hmm. the, the volunteer hours thing would we're great for them because from what I know about millennials, a lot of them are like people pleasers. Yeah. They don't want to make conflict and they want to well, look like good people. Right. There's a lot of, there's they, a lot but of, but they the, don't want to make the sacrifices. Right. Right. There's a lot of the words, the words of activism with not a whole lot of the, the act, the like activity required to actually make a positive change in right. things. And when, and when, if, if I were driving down the, down the street and I saw that sign, I think my generation, me, I'd be like, I don't care. I don't care that they did volunteer hours. I'm not doing that. And I think like, like the generation, like they, everything just keeps coming so quick. It's like one generation after another, after another. Yeah. And, and we keep falling further and further behind. And, and I, and so, they, okay. So what would your billboard be? I'm, that's what I was going to ask you guys. Cause I don't know what my billboard would be. I, I think my, I think, I mean, as, I'm, I mean, I'm not assuming that a billboard is the way to do right. it. If, if pre, right. pre evangelism, your slogan people. for your I think, I think we can assume that's the right way to do it. That's the only <laughs> way to do evangelism is on a billboard. No, but like, but like, yeah, what, what would like a, a, a little slogan be? Whatever. I think mm-hmm. for... No, but I, I think it's important to be like, well, what would you, what would you think people... Because yes. it, it could be that there isn't one. It could be that like it's, I played you, like Jesus said, I played you a wedding song and you didn't dance. I played you a funeral dirge and you didn't mm-hmm. cry. Like nothing will please you. Mm-hmm. It just, might just be that people are just so sufficiently anti-religious mm-hmm. that nothing that insinuates religious usefulness is going to touch them until they meet and spend time with a person yes, right. 
that makes them doubt their bigotries. Yeah, mm-hmm. I and I believe that that might be. I think that we've come to that point. Um, to, to so your very, billboard would just be a picture. Uh, of you. It would be a picture of me, <laughs> and I'd say, "Come on in." I'd have my arms open for a hug, mm-hmm. and it would say, "Come on in." Uh, but I think that that's like a really good point because I think yeah. like yeah, for for my generation, I think as time has gone on, we've become you know as a culture just less and less um, rooted in biblical principle and like even in just how we live and how we talk and how we act and what we wear Mm -hmm. everything has just gradually gone that way and that's what happens over time and so i think like my generation might be like the first generation that's kind of in that that like um where you can't really catch our attention with a slogan or or a phrase you the only way you can catch our attention is by caring about us and like and and in a lot of ways being like father and mother figures, the ones that we never had because parents are divorced and you know, we have the highest, you know, suicide rates and all these things. But I think that, yeah, for my generation, it would probably yeah. be just like care. I don't know. Just care. Yeah. I think the difficulty here with the, so there's, okay, there's two things I want to say about this. One is when you said, why don't we just leap forward and like catch up, you know? And there's a, there's a reason why, cause it's really hard Yeah. cause nobody knows what's right. So, for example, in the 1970s and, and later, you've had lots of churches that have tried to, like, plant new churches, get way out in front. And those are literally the thing, the, the churches that you just attacked 20 minutes ago when you were, like, these two, the, you know, the, the lights and the freaking, oh, okay. you know, well, smoke. I have two, we and well, have different like, views of how to do that. No, but listen, but all of those things came from people who said, yeah. Okay, these old churches with the little thrones on the mm-hmm. thing, it's in mm-hmm. the hymns and the ball. We, like right. we got to get out there. It's got to be like kids like going to music concerts. People love going to music concerts. Those engage their attention. Those are talking about things that they care about. Let's simulate something that's like a venue, like that, that talks about something they care about. Let's. So one of the issues is that when people try to do that, the liability is is that when you try to catch up with where people are culturally, you start doing things culturally that might be captured by worldliness mm-hmm. and so like you look at that and you're like that's sticking worldliness well maybe maybe it is maybe it's at least partly worldliness but that's the difficulty when you try to jump into what's relevant to the culture what's happening is you're accepting their view of human nature you're accepting their view of what's relevant you're mm-hmm. like you're mm-hmm. entering in contextually into very dangerous grounds and when you do that it's very difficult to do it a hundred percent faithfully what tends to happen is you get a mixture you get some people that make some cool innovations that do some really neat things and that those things are really great. But then you get these other things that you're like, this is stupid. This is just worldliness. Mm-hmm. Like we think that lights and smoke, like if, if we manipulate people to make a decision, that's going to matter. Or even like more, more like, like with our music or our worship music, like more contem- right. like new, newer right. songs and stuff. Right. Like that so we too. made our worship music just like pop music. Yeah. And then we, and then we realized it was so incredibly shallow we could barely stand it (laughs) but what we should have known all along was here's the thing here's the thing it's because pop music was so incredibly shallow Mm -hmm. we should have never been able to stand it like i can't bear to listen to pop music not because the beats aren't okay the beats are fine they're every song is about the same thing Mm -hmm. it's a very short bandwidth of things that you can talk about it's never interesting it's very stupid and it always taps into some visceral desire of mine to like have a new relationship or to feel like, like basically it's basically their worship songs where the idolatry is romance rather than worship song where the focus is God. Mm-hmm. And that's all it is. And it's, and it's like the same four chords and 
and the production value goes <laughs> up, but that's all there is. Yeah. And so what Christians didn't realize was, well, if we become just like pop music, we'll, we're going to be, a, we're going to produce something as shallow as pop music. Right. Well, yeah. Right. But see, what's happened though is, is that then there were offshoots where Christians were like, well, wait, I think we could write pop produced like songs that were less shallow. And you started to get bands like Delirious and stuff like that that were out when you were like a kid, you know? And, and people are trying to figure out a way right. to be actively relevant and yet to be fully faithful. Mm-hmm. But that is very hard. Yeah. And so it's really important, especially when you're young, to to know that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, right. and especially the, the young thing, like part of the difficulty about these decisions is it just sometimes takes time to see how they're going to bear out. Like obviously, yeah, we should do as much upfront work as we can to, to think about our ideas clearly and to make sure that they are both contextualizing the things that are worth, like worth holding onto while not losing the solid core. But even when you're doing that, your best ideas might still be really dumb and you need like three years before or, or significantly more before you're like, this is not working Mm -hmm. how we thought it would work. (laughs) As long as you have the mindset of like, I think it's, yeah, I think that's all all good. As long as you have the mindset of like, I'm, it's okay if I'm wrong. Like, Mm -hmm. like the whole idea of like Edison and the light bulb, like he found 99 ways how to not make the light bulb. As long as you're like, you try something and you're like, okay, you try for two years and you're like, this isn't working and you're okay. And your pride isn't too big. And you're like, all right, let's move forward and, and right. keep working. Right, you're not just so attached to the idea that. Right. Well, it, and that that's operative on our staff team. Like I tell our my staff, our staff people, especially the department leaders, I like listen. Here's your budget. If you don't waste some of this money, you're not playing. Hmm. Like I like you should fail two or three times a year with something, and I expect you to fail. But what I want to know when you fail is what we learned. Mm-hmm. Every experience experience you do, I want you to know beforehand. If it works, we'll learn this. If it fails, we'll learn this. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was writing a check for like 15 grand to an African-American pastor in town because of something he wanted to try. I remember saying to him, listen, I will give you this check when you tell me what we will learn if this fails. Hmm. I know you think it's going to work. I know you're optimistic. I know you want to make a difference. But I want you to tell me what we'll learn if this fails. Mm-hmm. Because one way or another, we're going to get something for this money. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, that's interesting because I put failure out of my mind because I don't want to fail. But he's like, y- you're, you think of this as like information gathering, yeah, right? Data. And my answer is, yes, I do. And, and it's because we're going to mostly fail. Like that's mostly what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. So the second point to get back to something John said is that's why for every local church, every church, the core has got to be proclamation and substantive discipleship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the bottom the beauty yeah. of Christian life and the exposition of the beauty of the Christian gospel has to be at the heart of everything. No matter what you try, mm-hmm. those two things have to be operative. One-on-one discipleship or like close life-on-life family, body of Christ discipleship mm-hmm. of lives of beauty where people are trying to grow in godliness and in love and encourage and in deep, deep Christ-likeness. Mm-hmm. That's where the beauty comes from. That's what really makes it compelling. Mm-hmm. And then the gospel has to be proclaimed. The truth has to be continually told vocally. That's got to be part of it, mm-hmm. and that's got to be the heart of it. Everything else is really just trying to draw people into that yeah. to see it. And so, if you—that's one of the reasons why High Point, our big focus is substantive discipleship, and biblical proclamation, and worship, worshiping God. Mm-hmm. Then, apart from that, what can we do to draw people in? 
But the heart has got to be that the beauty of godliness. It's mm-hmm. got to be the beauty of godliness, the beauty of worshiping, the beauty of God, and the beauty of the good news of the gospel being brought to people and expressed to them and them being invited to it. Mm-hmm. That never changes. But the how you get people's attention has to change. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think like the bottom line is that like through all the generations of all time, basically, the one thing that you can rely on is just friendship. Like if you want to do evangelism, go out and make friends and, 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 and like go out and make friends with new people, meet new people. And I think like uh, a th- thing that I learned was like, sometimes it's, it's um, easier to share the gospel than to show the gospel. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just as important to show the gospel and like go out and make friends and show people who Christ is throughout you live. And just like exactly what you just said, I think that's like the universal, like, simple form of evangelism yeah. go and meet people yeah and i think right that needs to for sure be bounded on both sides like yeah. there is a there is a easy temptation to okay it's easier to easier to show the gospel than to share the gospel so i'm going to just be really nice and then eventually one day they'll ask me hey why are you so nice and it's like <laughs> as Vince That's, Pieri says, right, right, that never happens. Never happens. Shut up. Yeah, and, you know, in my life, that's happened a couple of times. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a couple of times. Right. right? But right. I think it's important to recognize this. There's two fallacies to that that are very big. Why? There's no such thing as showing the gospel without speaking the gospel. Right. Because part of the gospel is telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you won't tell the truth, you're not really showing the gospel. Right. right. And then secondly, what most Christians are doing when they say they're showing the gospel is not really showing the gospel because showing the gospel means living the truth. And what they mean by showing the gospel is being merely gracious, Mm -hmm. but not being fully truthful. Mm -hmm. And they think that that's going to be compelling. And being very gracious without being truthful is not that compelling. Mm -hmm. And what people do to gracious people who are not fully truthful is take advantage of them. Right. That's what happens. And you're accomplishing nothing. You're actually helping them sin more and you're confirming them in their sin more by like, um, by creating a space for them to be more selfish. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think that, that like though that's like a cataclysmically bad idea. And, but, and I think what, what ends up happening with, with some of that idea is you get these like younger generations, which I would include like Gen Xers and younger. This is true for even for boomers. Though. So it might just be human nature. Nick's just trying to make himself feel young. Yeah. I know, <laughs> yeah. It's bad. Um, but they want to be nice to people. Right. And they want to do good and feel like good people. And so they, they don't want to tell the truth because that makes you feel like a bad person because it creates conflict, right? So, And in the short term, creates negative feelings right, and things right. like that, right? And so, what I've, so one of the reasons why I, I think I'm this way, other than that I got bullied a lot, <laughs> is that if you just read the Bible, you would never get from reading the New Testament that what you're supposed to be is like really agreeable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you would never get that you would never yeah. read about jesus and be like oh jesus was always just saying things people wanted to hear and mm-hmm. just being super nice to them right like in every like basically every teaching of jesus is like yeah guys you're you're like basically really screwing this up okay like that's why gotta, they killed him right <laughs> right and then but then you get to the apostles in acts in mm-hmm. every sermon in the book of acts is what's called an accusation section mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's like very direct. It's like you people killed Jesus. Right. Like it's, it's it's like not nice at all. Yeah. Right. And then, <clears throat> like Stephen's like, uh, he tells the whole story of Israel and how never in the history of the Israel had they ever been obedient ever. Mm-hmm. Like God has spoke did this. And you basically never ever is there any prophet you people don't kill. Like it's mm-hmm. I mean that's how he talks. Yeah. 
And then oh, you yeah. get the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul is like all conflict all the time. And like you would just would never get from the writings of the New Testament. I better be nice. That, yeah, like, I should be so nice. Grace and, grace and truth. I should just be very gracious. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like, yes, you should be gracious. But like Christians have always been these like no nonsense, truth telling, truth living. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to play games. Yes, Roman Empire, you can burn me alive and feed me to lions. I will never back down. Yeah. Like. I mean, and they were like young women and old women mm-hmm. that were fed to lions, like mm-hmm. women in their seventies and eighties. And they're just like, mm-hmm. throw me in. Right. And like the, like no, most like men, like strong young men of today would like run and cry. Oh, I mean at that. the like fainting pearl clutching you find among Christians about not being liked in whatever city they live in or mm-hmm. because like, Oh, people are not going to like me, but I'll just be so gracious that then people want to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. No, they won't. Mm-hmm. Being a Christian is dying. It or is you're taking- the, you're, t- you're preaching the false, the, the false grace uh, type thing that, that you were talking about with yeah. salvation where that where, where, yeah, maybe they will be like, yeah, I'll be a Christian. But it's your it's your Christianity. It's not Jesus's Christianity, and they're believing something that isn't true to what, like right. Because grace without truth is appeasement. It's not yes, right. And not. so if you if you live with just grace and no truth towards people, and they're like, oh, so everything I do is fine, then that's how God is. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's just the kind of God I was hoping for. Right. And all that means is that they just take advantage of everyone, including God, and it's really awful. So, <clears throat> but that's that's why. So when people say, well, I'm just going to do that, you're not doing anything good. Mm-hmm. What you need to do is pursue the beauty of holiness or godliness through the operation of both grace and truth in your life mm-hmm. with both the encouragement that God will keep you and the vigilance that you have to persevere to the end, mm-hmm. right? As you're in your doctrine of salvation, in, in your doctrine of the salvation of others, that they need to grow in a full persevering discipleship. And that you're drawing them to a complete transformation to become people who will take up their cross daily and follow Christ, mm-hmm. not just people who will pray a prayer, mm-hmm. right? Amen. And so um, Amen. that's the mentality. And then you figure out, do we use lights and smoke? Do we use bells yeah. and smells? Do we yeah. do we go volunteer in the schools and invite, do we just invite people like, do we engage in yeah. like neighborhood event? Like, what do we do? And, that, and that's all, that's all on, lays on top of all these other basic levels. Yeah. But that stuff can only come after you've done what the f- you become godly, basically, right. or, or right. decided to grow in godliness. Right. I believe that only godliness is truly intriguing, because the person who only barks out truth at other people is essentially the ideologue. We got plenty of those. Mm-hmm. We got plenty of ideologues in our culture, especially in a place like Madison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody likes those people. And then you've got the gracious people who are just kind of like. Well, whatever. They're like weak appeasers. Nobody really respects those people, mm-hmm. right? It's only a person who can like tell the truth without intentionally alienating you. Somebody who clearly loves you when they tell you the truth. That is mm-hmm. like admonishing, right? Rather than provoking. Right. And you're not intentionally alienating yourself, but you're, but you're understanding that you could be alienated mm-hmm. because right. of what you're saying. Like, right. like don't go up to people and be like, offense. you're going to hell. And just to be like, right. I, yeah, don't do that because then you're trying to be alienated. But right, I'm going to preach on this when I preach on children obey your parents in Ephesians six. That mm-hmm. what, what what parents are told not to do is provoke their children, mm-hmm. and what they're told to do is admonish their children. Now, both of those are negative words. Admonishment is telling people to stop with a course of action that is bad. That's mm-hmm. what admonition means. Mm-hmm. Provoking means attacking somebody so that they will they will do something that's not in their interest. Mm-hmm. Right. Admonishing is to correct someone so that they would do what's in their interest. 
And the difference between and so like if you go out in the mass and you look at all these like people who think they're they're like prophets or like truth tellers speaking truth to power, they're that's what a prophet is, right? Mm-hmm. So they're like these prophets, and you listen to them talk. Sometimes some of them even call themselves provocateurs. Provocateur is built on the word provoke. That is, you're you're attacking someone so that they will do what's not in their interest, mm-hmm. right? Do people, do people know that? I feel like nobody would call themselves that unless they knew. Like only you would know something like that. Right. Like. Well, the idea is that if, if a provocateur provokes you and then you get really angry and you do what's not in your interest and you behave badly. Then you'll destroy yourself. You'll either destroy yourself or you'll be like, crap, I don't want to behave this way. Mm-hmm. What made me behave this way? Mm-hmm. And then you go back to the message of the provocateurs. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it could be positive. But Jesus says that's not how you're supposed to behave. Right. What you're supposed to do is to say the negative message of the truth that is necessary as an admonition, inviting and pleading with people to come to the truth, mm-hmm. right? And that is fundamental. And only the, the one who will admonish in truth, who truly clearly loves you, who lives in the beauty of holiness, and who is gracious with people they don't need to be gracious to, and they're a whole person. Those people are intriguing and attractive, and only those people really look like God. Because God is full of the beauty of holiness, is a truth teller, is very gracious. He's the whole thing. If you just radiate one attribute of God badly, mm-hmm. you're not doing anything. You're actually hurting that attribute of God because the attributes of God take their beauty from their interrelationship with all the others. Mm. And all of them interrelated to each other produces this whole like magnificent tapestry that is called right. love. Right. Every virtue perfectly interrelated with every other virtue. If you're like, well, I'm just going to be gracious. You're not even gracious. You're nothing. Right, you you have to be the whole thing, mm-hmm. and that's why the pursuit of godliness is absolutely fundamental to every believer. But if you, here's how I'll bring this home. You ready for this? Yes, this is gonna be good. <laughs> if you pursue sanctification, the beauty of godliness, that's the road to perseverance. Boom. <laughs> and if you persevere, you're saved. You make it to the end. Mm-hmm. You have assurance. Let me say one last thing for the on the question of knowing you're saved. The Bible doesn't handle it this way. Like there's like, are you saved? Are you not saved? That's mm-hmm. not how the Bible talks. The best book on assurance of the Bible is first John. Mm-hmm. And what the book of first John teaches us to do is to not say, what well, am I really saved? When I accepted Jesus, was it real? What the book of first John says is basically is the grace of God operating in your life. And here's how you would know. And it gives you criteria. So it's mm-hmm. like, a, will you openly and verbally confess that Jesus is Lord? First of all, two, do you love other people who love Jesus? That is the brothers or the sisters or the church. Do you love those who love Jesus? Do you love them? Mm-hmm. Cause that's your best and most concrete way of being honest with yourself about whether or not you love Jesus. Cause if you know, they love Jesus and you know, Jesus loves them and you don't love them. You don't love Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if you don't love the church, that is the people who belong to Jesus. You don't love Jesus mm-hmm. and you're not saved. Okay. Mm-hmm. The third is, are you falling out of love with the world? So all the visceral desires and stuff and all the things in the world that are not of the Lord and that want to take your attention, are you falling out of love with them because your attention is going more to the one you love into the things he cares about? If those are happening, then even if your own inner conscience is attacking you, Hmm. you can turn to those objective criteria and know that God is working in you because Hmm. to People that are completely subsumed in depravity do not, those three things are not operative. Mm-hmm. But people who've experienced re- the miracle of regeneration, those three things are always operative. And if you're consumed in depravity, you, your, your mind isn't going to be trying to convince you that you're not saved. Like, like if you're asking yourself that question at least 
at least you're asking like that means that there has to be some sort of change right like your 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 flesh is flipping out like yes what, but, what, why are you but there's this? at least two options one is you could not be saved but you could be under the conviction of god mm-hmm. and what you yeah. need to happen what needs to happen is you need to get converted for real you need to really believe mm-hmm. the second option is you are a believer and you are you're entering into self-doubt for some reason mm-hmm. and god wants to encourage you and and um give you the doctrine of assurance remember the the theo- most theologians don't write about whether or not you're saved or not or you can lose your salvation the biblical, the positive biblical doctrine is assurance. Yeah. How do you feel like you know you're in God's love? Mm-hmm. That's the question. And the book of First John is the best book for that. Mm. It gives you the criteria that, that you can use and have in conversations with others. Because like John could come and be like, Nick, I just don't even know if I'm a Christian. I could be like, okay, John, do you love Jesus? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you love the church? I think I do. Are you falling out of the world? I don't even know. But then I can say, John, I've been walking with you for like, because you're part of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. We have a close relationship. I've watched you these last two years. You are definitely falling out of love, love of the world. Mm-hmm. And you definitely demonstrate with your life that you love the church. So see, I can give him assurance because the objective criteria is outside of both of us. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. It's outside of both of us. And so because it's outside of us and it's not just subjective, mm-hmm. I can give John assurance. I can give you assurance. You can give me assurance mm-hmm. because they're objective, not just subjective criteria, yeah. which is a real a huge gift of God. Yeah. Because if it was only whether or not you had really believed in Jesus in, inside of you, right. that's fundamentally subjective. Nobody else could possibly mm-hmm. know that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it allows other people to get involved in your assurance, which is a huge gift of God. Just mm-hmm. Discipleship is so important. You want to have those people around you. But I think that was good. And I think, <laughs> so basically what I learned is that I need to go home and read First John. And uh, yeah, that was awesome. So um, we're out of time for this for this one. But uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you guys.